0: We first meet Saul of Tarsus at the stoning of Stephen, where he's keeping the discarded robes and cloaks for those who are actually stoning this first martyr. Almost immediately, Paul advances to the forefront of the opposition to the church. He breathes out threats and murder against believers. He votes to put them to death. He chases believers out of Jerusalem off to Samaria, and then to Antioch, and to other cities. Now, when we meet Paul in chapter 13 of the book of Acts, he himself is in Antioch. He's leading the church. He's helping to lead the church that he helped to plant by persecuting believers in Jerusalem and chasing them off to Antioch. He shares that leadership of the church with Barnabas, with Leaders from uh, uh, North Africa. One of the leaders is a childhood companion of Herod Agrippa. It's a multi-ethnic Jew-Gentile church, the first church where believers were called Christians. And of course, in the middle of this, between Paul cooperating in persecution to Paul leading a church that began from the persecuted, Paul met Jesus Christ, Saul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And from that encounter on, from the moment of that encounter on, Paul's entire life was determined. The shape of Paul's life began to show, it began to take form in the immediate aftermath of that encounter with Jesus. He preaches the gospel and Jews oppose him. That's going to keep happening. He has to keep moving from place to place just a step ahead of the Jews who are opposing him. That continues to happen. He starts out as a member of a team leading the church in Antioch, but then he becomes the head of the mission to the Gentiles. From the moment he encounters Jesus, he ceases to be the man who helped put Stephen to death, and he becomes another Stephen. He preaches the gospel as Stephen did. He preaches from the scriptures as Stephen did. He's persecuted as Stephen was. He's stoned several times as Stephen was. But Saul of Tarsus survives those stonings. Stephen was a second Christ. And if Saul is another Stephen, Saul also is another manifestation of Christ among the Jews and among the Gentiles. Saul doesn't just preach Christ with his words. He proclaims Christ with his actions and with the experiences of his life. On the road to Damascus, he was confronted with the blinding light of Jesus Christ. And having entered into the light, he becomes that light to those he serves and preaches to. His first missionary expedition, which is recounted here in Acts 13, has that same Christic shape he continues to relive the life of jesus you'll remember at the beginning of luke's gospel jesus is baptized and filled with the spirit he immediately goes out into the wilderness where he confronts satan where satan tempts him he battles and defeats satan and then he goes to his hometown of nazareth and he preaches his first sermon spirit satan sermon i didn't realize that was going to alliterate when i started That's happening to Paul too. The spirit comes on him, the spirit sends him. He goes out and he confronts, not Satan, but a satanically motivated counselor to the governor of Cyprus. And having encountered this satanic figure, he goes on to preach his longest sermon in the book of Acts. Saul encounters this demonic figure, Bar-Jesus, in the court of Sergius Paulus, the governor of the island of Cyprus. In his first missionary encounter, Saul is like Moses before Pharaoh, confronted not just by Pharaoh, but confronted by the magicians of Egypt. He's like Jeremiah, who tried to preach to the kings of Judah, but was constantly opposed by false prophets. Saul confronts this opponent, this false prophet, this magos, this magician and sorcerer, Bar-Jesus or Elamas. And Saul defeats him as Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness. Because Jesus defeated Satan in the wilderness, Saul is able to confront this man, Bar-Jesus, and overcome him and overwhelm him and remove him as an obstacle to the gospel. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. He's not a son of Jesus. He's nothing like Jesus. In fact, Paul calls him a son of the devil. He claims to be filled with a prophetic spirit. He's not filled with a prophetic spirit. He's filled with deceit and fraud, as Paul charges. And whatever powers he has, his powers are nothing in comparison with the power that is in Paul, in Saul, who is filled with the spirit and casts blindness on Bar-Jesus. Saul encounters Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus. But Saul is the one that's more like Jesus' twin in this encounter, like Jesus, he battles Satan, and like Jesus, he triumphs. And we shouldn't miss the setting of this encounter with Bar Jesus. He doesn't encounter Bar Jesus in a synagogue, although he's preached in some synagogues on Cyprus. He doesn't encounter Bar Jesus in the Agora, in the open square of the city of Paphos. He encounters Bar Jesus during an audience before the governor of Cyprus. The very first evangelistic encounter in the very first mission to the Gentiles is, takes place in the court of a Roman governor. And the one who is evangelized is a political leader, a Gentile political leader of the island of Cyprus. And Paul's successful Paul's mission to the Gentiles begins in his first encounter. And it's not just a mission to the Gentiles. It's a mission to a political leader, a ruler among the Gentiles. And once he is blinded Bar Jesus, Sergius Paulus is impressed. He thought Bar-Jesus had power. But now this Saul comes along, and Saul clearly has more power than Bar-Jesus had. And he's also amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This Gentile ruler, Sergius Paulus, is a convert. When Saul leaves Cyprus, he leaves behind the first step, the first stone at the foundation of the Christianization of the Roman Empire. This is not a deviation from Paul's mission. Evangelizing a political leader is not a deviation from the mission, it is Saul's mission. It's what he's commissioned. To do, And throughout Acts, he's going to be standing before kings. He's going to be standing before governors. Ultimately, we don't see it in Acts, but we know he was waiting to stand before Caesar himself. Saul is sent out to witness before kings and governors. His mission is an evangelistic mission. It is also inherently, essentially, a political mission. As Saul goes from place to place... He calls on governors and rulers everywhere to acknowledge the new Lord, the risen Jesus, as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. We can imagine what he said before Caesar. It wouldn't have been any different from anything he said before anybody else. He would have announced, there is another king, one Jesus, and you, Caesar, must submit to him. From the beginning, the church's mission is a political mission, as the church city after city, as the church claims territory within the Roman Empire for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Saul's standing before a Roman governor foreshadows his future ministry. He will stand before governors and kings and ultimately Caesar throughout his ministry. And his encounter with Sergius Paulus and with Bargesus also foreshadows what happens in the rest of the book of Acts. Saul goes to synagogues. He preaches to the Jew first. But then the Jews oppose him, as Bar-Jesus does. And once he has overcome or turned away from the Jews, he turns to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles listen. That's what's happening in the court of Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus listens. The Jewish false prophet opposes Saul. He tries to prevent Saul from uh, proclaiming the gospel to Sergius Paulus. And instead uh, and he's he's overcome, he's defeated. That happens also at the end of the chapter, the section that I just read a moment ago. Paul moves on to Pisidian Antioch. This is a different Antioch than the one that he started from. And in Pisidian Antioch he goes to a synagogue and he proclaims the gospel in a synagogue. And there's a great response. Many people Jews and proselytes, Jews and God-fearing Gentiles want to follow Jesus when they hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. They want to be disciples of the Lord Jesus. But when the Jews of the town see this, they become envious. And instead of submitting to this good news, good news to the Jew first and also to the Greek, they arouse opposition. They begin to blaspheme. They begin to contradict Paul. Ultimately, they rouse others of the city to oppose uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, in Pisidian Antioch. And so Paul says, I'm turning to the Gentiles. This is what I've been sent to do, to be a light to the Gentiles. This is going to happen over and over and over again throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Saul's first missionary expedition sets the tone and the pattern for everything that follows. Saul goes, Paul goes, to Gentiles, to Jews first, to synagogues. The Jews listen, some of them listen, but many of them refuse. Saul turns away, Paul turns away from the Gentiles, and he, uh, the Jews, and turns to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles receive the word of God with joy and with thanksgiving. That's how the word of God spreads. That's how the mission of the church continues as it moves from Jerusalem to Samaria and out to the uttermost parts of the earth. The Jew first and then also the Greek. But in the end, the first is last, and the last first, as the Jews resist Saul, and Paul, resist Paul, and Paul instead turns to the Gentiles. I should mention, since I keep confusing the name, that in the middle of this passage, Saul's name changes. Just as he's rebuking Bar-Jesus, Luke inserts a little note, oh, by the way, he's also called Paul, And from that point on in the book of Acts, he's always Paul. We never go back to the name Saul. And it's significant that he's called Paul at the very moment that he's overcoming opposition within the court of Sergius Paulus. Our Bibles translate or transliterate Paulus the way it is in the Greek. Paul, that name, is also Paulus. He has the same name as the governor, you wonder who's in charge by the time Paul leaves. When he leaves Paphos, is Sergius Paulus the governor anymore? He's certainly not relying on Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus has lost what you would call ethos in this encounter with Saul. Instead, the one who Sergius Paulus listens to, the shadow governor of Cyprus, is Paul, once Saul of Tarsus. He encountered uh, Saul's, Paul's I did it again. Paul's, Paul's mission is set. The form of Paul's mission is, is set by what happens at Cyprus. It's set by what happens at the city of Antioch. He preaches to Jews. The Jews reject him. He preaches to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles receive him. And in the middle of those two episodes, between uh, Paul's encounter with Sergius Paulus and Bargesus at the beginning of the chapter and the turning from the Jews at the end of the chapter, Paul gives his first and his longest sermon. It begins in verse 16 and following. This is how Paul preaches the gospel. Just, like, just as these episodes with Sergius Paulus and Barjesus, with the Jews and Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, those set the pattern for the rest of Paul's mission so this sermon sets the tone of all the rest of Paul's preaching. Everything else he preaches comes out of this sermon. This is the way the gospel should be preached. This is the way the apostles preach the gospel. What does that gospel look like? It's a whole Bible gospel. The Jews divided the Old Testament into the Torah and the prophets and the writings. And Paul cites all of those sections of the Old Testament as he's preaching. He begins with the Exodus. That's part of the Torah. He talks about the wilderness wanderings, also part of Torah. He mentions the Judges and the, and the, king, and the kingdom of Saul, which is part of what the Jews would have thought of as former prophets. He quotes from the Psalms, from Psalm 2. He quotes from Psalm 16 and interprets Psalm 16. He quotes from Isaiah. He ends by quoting from Habakkuk. He goes through Torah, prophets, and writings. Everything in scripture is part of the gospel. And everything in scripture, and this is the second feature of his gospel, everything in scripture is about Jesus. Paul wasn't present when Jesus taught his disciples after his resurrection He began to teach them everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. That's in Luke 24. Paul wasn't there. Somewhere along the line, he learned that lesson. And he learned that whether he's teaching on Torah, whether he's teaching on the former prophets, David, whether he's preaching on the writings, like the Psalms, whether he's preaching on the latter prophets, like Isaiah, whatever he's preaching on, he's preaching Jesus. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the king of Psalm 2. Jesus is the uncorrupted uh, one who went into the tomb and was, did not decay. That's mentioned in Psalm 16. It's through Jesus that the blessings of David come to Israel. Jesus is the one who brings the, uh, the marvelous days that Habakkuk talks about at the end of this sermon. Everything that Paul talks about is about Jesus. And these two things have to go together. It, our gospel, Paul's gospel, is a whole Bible gospel and it's a gospel about Jesus. Our gospel has to be a whole Bible gospel and a gospel about Jesus. We don't understand the Bible unless we know Jesus, unless we know that it's the story of Jesus. But it's just as important to recognize we don't know Jesus unless we know the whole Bible. You can't start at Matthew and think you're going to learn who Jesus is because Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, which mentions all kinds of Old Testament characters. Who are these people? You can't get two verses into Matthew without having to go back to the book of Genesis and find out who these people are and why they're important. Our gospel has to be a whole Bible gospel because there's no other way that we can recognize the fullness of Jesus Christ unless we recognize him as the climax of everything in the Torah and in the prophets and in the writings. Our gospel has to be Paul's gospel, which is a gospel about Jesus found in every page of the scripture, everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. But there's an even more specific focus for Paul's preaching here. It's a whole Bible gospel that focuses on Jesus Christ, but it focuses in particular on one episode in the life of Jesus, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Over and over again, God raised him up. God raised him up. He went to the tomb, but God raised him up. He didn't decay in the grave because God raised him up. The resurrection is the uh, fulfillment of everything that Israel's hoped for. If resurrection, resurrection, resurrection is one part of Paul's sermon, it's promise, promise, promise that's the other part. Everything Israel wanted, everything Israel was hoping for is is founded in the resurrection of Jesus. They want a new David. The resurrection of Jesus brings them a new David. They want forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of Jesus is the basis for forgiveness of sins. They want to be justified from all those things from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that confers that blessing of justification. Because God raised him, all the promises that were given to Israel are fulfilled. That has to be our focus too. Our gospel is not just a gospel of the cross, it's not just a gospel of a crucified Jesus. And the resurrection is not simply kind of God's seal of approval on what would happen on the cross. The resurrection is the necessary fulfillment and completion of what Jesus did on the cross. A dead Jesus is not a Savior. A dead Christ is no Christ. If Jesus' body went into the tomb and actually did decay, then he's no more than another David. Because David can do that, David can die and rot in the tomb. If, if there's going to be forgiveness, if there's going to be reconciliation, if there's going to be justification, there has to be the resurrection of Jesus. A dead Savior is no Savior at all. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, we are still in our sins. If we have hope only in this life, if we have hope only in this life and not in a life after death, a life after life after death, if we don't have that hope, Then we are of all men most miserable. The resurrection of Jesus is the climax of God's work in Christ. If Jesus is not raised, he can't ascend to take the throne at his Father's right hand. A corpse cannot pour out the spirit of life. If Jesus is not raised, we have nothing. Israel has nothing. The gospel is not true. If Jesus' body rotted in the tomb. You can have a cross. You can have the teaching of Jesus. You can have all the miracles of Jesus. If he is not raised, there is no gospel for us to preach. But God raised him up. God raised up his son. That is the turning point of human history. That's the plot twist that everything led to and everything after flows from. Because God raised up Jesus, death is dethroned. Death gives up its throne. And instead, those who receive life and righteousness are on the throne of the world. Because Jesus is raised, he's declared son of God with power. Because Jesus is raised, the spirit has come because Jesus has been glorified. And the spirit dwells in us. So that the one who raised Jesus will also raise our bodies from the dead. Because Jesus is raised, we have new life now. Because we share in his resurrection, we can present our bodies uh, as instruments of righteousness to God. Because Jesus is raised, we're born again to a living hope. And this perishable body will put on an imperishable. And this mortal will put on an immortal. And our weakness will be swallowed up in strength. And our fleshly bodies will give way to spiritual bodies. Because God raised up Jesus, and for no other reason. Because Jesus is raised, the whole creation will be glorified. The birth pangs of creation, creation groaning and travailing to give birth to new creation, those birth pangs begin when the first man comes back from the grave, when resurrection life breaks out into the world. Then the creation begins to follow. The entire creation begins to follow. Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Not life, not death, not angels, not principalities, not powers, not things present, not things to come. Nothing can separate us because God raised up Jesus. Nothing can stand against us because God raised up Jesus. No one can bring a charge against us because God raised up Jesus. We have nothing to fear. What is there to fear but death? And death has lost its sting. We have nothing to fear because God raised up Jesus. Everything we have, everything we hope for, depends on the resurrection of Jesus. All scriptural roads lead to Jesus and his resurrection, and every missional road leaves from Easter. To the ends of the earth. Everything depends on the good news. God raised up Jesus. And so we say Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.